Well, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll have my slides there. <clears throat> and we begin a new topic of study as we continue our way through 1 Corinthians, coming now to the 15th chapter. I mentioned this to you. I bet you don't remember. <laughs> It was a year ago, October, when we began our study of Corinthians. Believe it, it's been a year already. And in the first two messages, I outlined for you the four major themes that Paul was going to address to the church of Corinth throughout this letter. The first one was the assertion of Paul's apostolic authority to be able to teach them, instruct them, correct them, rebuke them, and they would listen to him Understanding that he is an apostle, that he is authoritatively sent by God. He's not just one of many voices that are vying for attention, but he has a unique position in their lives. After all, he is the planter of the church. He is the evangelist that won them to the Lord. He is the one that has discipled them in their faith. The second thing that we looked at in the themes were that the church is God's, it is not ours, it doesn't belong to us, apart from how long we've been here, or how much money we've given, or how many different things we've done. The church is His, it is made up of people who have been saved by grace, they are committed to living a life purely and honorably before Him, not getting drug away into the things of the world, distracted by the ways of the world, and looking too much like the world. But the church is a unique place, a unique group of people who have been set apart for the Lord. He also reminded them that the church is filled with grace and spiritual gifts, and these gifts are to be used for the glory of God, for the edification of His church, not for personal gain. And the last major theme that we're going to look at begins today, and that is the resurrection of believers in the future. Throughout the letter, Paul has made reference to the last days or the end times as a way of reminding them of the importance of this piece of doctrine. For example, all the way back in 1 Corinthians 1, we would read in verse 8, "...who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in the day is always a reference to that day, that last day, the day of glory and the day of judgment for those who do and do not know the Lord. He would also say in 1 Corinthians 6.14 that God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. And that is probably the most significant preview of what we're going to see today in chapter 15. Now, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians is the most in-depth discussion in all of Scripture as it relates to the bodily resurrection of believers. The resurrection of believers from the dead signals the consummation of all things when the Son hands the kingdom over to the Father, as He will mention in verse 24. The death is finally destroyed, as mentioned in verse 26, so that God may be all in all, as is referenced in verse 28. So eschatology is a vital component of Christian theology, and it is central to the gospel message. It was central to the teachings of Jesus throughout His earthly ministry. In fact, it's recorded in Mark 8.31, He began to teach them, He began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days 
rise again. So early on in Jesus' ministry, He prepared His followers for this reality, and He taught this truth to those who were listening to His words. He would say in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. Again, resurrection of believers is central to the gospel message. It is central to the teachings of Jesus. In fact, if you go into the book of Acts, the first two messages that are recorded, one in Acts 2, the other in Acts 3, are focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in our chapter today, in chapter 15, Paul is going to focus on a singular problem And that is the Corinthians' disbelief, not in Christ's resurrection, but confusion about their own resurrection in the future. So the the central verse in this entire chapter that deals with bodily resurrection is found in the second part of verse 12. Look down there with me. And this is the fulcrum point for everything that comes before and comes after. Here's the question that Paul poses to them. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? This is the central issue. There are many in the church that denied the bodily resurrection of the dead. Now the question I have when I hear that, when I understand that problem, is how do they come about? to this problem. What is it that created to them coming to this conclusion? And it's a really complicated factor of several influences, and I'll try to summarize it for you very, very briefly. So at this point, likely in the mid-50s, there was no detailed doctrinal teaching about the resurrection of believers because most believers were first-generation Christians, and the majority of them were still alive. Not all, but a majority of them were. In fact, in a somewhat parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians, it is believed that Paul wrote that letter while in Corinth, and as he penned that letter to the church in Thessalonica, he began teaching the church in Corinth about bodily resurrection. So that's one of the issues, is there isn't really a detailed doctrinal teaching in place, still very early in the birth of the church. Secondly, after Paul spent an estimated 18 months in Corinth and then left to continue his missionary journey, false theologies began to find their way into the church, especially because of how open the church was to worldly philosophy, and there were numerous ideologies in that day, as we articulated way, way back, as many as 50 different sources or patterns of truth that were in Corinth at this time. So when Paul left, and there was not solid teaching to keep things in line, it is believed that false theology, false teaching began to incorporate its way, incorporate its way into the church, and them having given themselves over to world philosophy, as we looked at early in this letter, they began to get very confused and disillusioned about the future resurrection. Thirdly, and wrapped into this as an extension of world, worldly philosophy, many in Corinth believed they had already achieved an elite spiritual position evidenced by the speaking of tongues, and the thought or the idea of a bodily resurrection seemed beneath them. They felt like they had already arrived, that there wouldn't be any need for a bodily resurrection. They were already there, so to speak. And so they just didn't understand, but they had come to the point where they denied the bodily resurrection of believers in the future 
And this is what Paul is going to deal with. He's not trying to convince them that Jesus rose from the dead, but that one day they too will be raised with him to eternal life. And Paul is going to establish the pattern for his argument in these first 11 verses that we're going to look at today. So Paul's intent in this passage is not to give a detailed account of the end times, nor is he trying to answer all the questions related to the end times. His focus is on explaining the bodily resurrection of believers when the time comes for the consummation of all things. God is going to pull the plug and He's going to usher into eternity and the dead in Christ are going to be raised and this is what Paul is primarily dealing with in this letter, excuse me, in this chapter. So in typical fashion, Paul will build his argument upon undeniable truth and then through this he's going to correct their faulty understanding. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11 as we begin this journey into our study of the resurrection. Now I make known to you brethren the gospel which I preached to you which also you received and which also you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. And last of all, as to one untimely born, excuse me, He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So in dealing with the issue of a bodily resurrection, Paul is going to begin with the common ground. Paul Again, Paul is not trying to prove the resurrection of Christ to them, but he's going to show them how the resurrection is central to our collective beliefs. He says in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you also stand, verse 2, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, Paul simply reminds them of the common ground that they have with him, that they have with the other apostles, and that all Christians have together. When he says, now I make known to you, he's not sharing with them information for the first time. He is making an appeal to those who believe they were the spiritual elite, to those who profess to have the gifts of wisdom and prophecy of knowledge, to those who were the teachers and the leaders within the church. He's reminding them of the centrality of the gospel message and how it affects this resurrection of the body. So Paul is simply reminding them of the gospel that he has preached 
The gospel that they have received, the gospel message in which they stand, the gospel message that brings salvation. He will articulate this message in verses 3 and 4, but at this point they should all be nodding their heads in agreement as they remember Paul's time with them of what he had taught, of the message that they believed, of the message that has brought them salvation. So they're sitting there going, yeah, I remember, yeah, I agree, yep, I'm standing fast, yep, that's what brought our salvation. They're sitting yeah, you're preaching to the choir, Paul. You're not telling us anything that we don't already know. Now, they profess to be standing in this message, meaning the message is what brings them confidence and security. But Paul adds a bit of a challenge as he affirms the centrality of this message and says, if you hold fast, unless you believed in vain. Now, if you were to read this and not really understand what Paul is saying, you might think that Paul is making a challenge to them or saying to them that you are at risk of losing your salvation if you don't hold out to the very end. But what Paul is actually saying, the proof of their salvation is found in the reality that they are holding fast to the salvation, to the message that they believe, the message that Paul has preached. And so the eternal security of the believer is found in the grace of God, by the gift of God, through the promises of God, by the power of God. But here's the key, not all who profess to believe actually do believe. In fact, I'm reminded often as I deal with this issue, as I talk to others about it, when Jesus taught, He taught this incredibly important parable of the sower who scattered his seed amongst the road. Remember that? He scattered the seed and some fell on the hard-packed soil and the birds immediately came and ate it up. Some fell among the rocks. It sprouted up at the heat of the day, burned it up. Some fell amongst the weeds along the side of the road and the weeds began to grow up and killed out the growth of the seed and then some actually landed in fertile soil and brought brought forth an abundance of fruit. So even in this, Jesus tells us that a fourth of those that hear it, these are not real numbers, they're just examples, a portion of the people are not going to believe at all. Some are going to believe, but they're not really true believers, and only a small percentage are actually going to believe and bear fruit. So this isn't about losing salvation. It's about the authenticity of the, of the profession of faith that people make, and the message they have heard, and the message that they have profess to believe in the message that they think they're holding fast to. So Paul says that, yes, you're standing in this if you hold fast until the very end. So the Corinthians are at risk of losing sight of the central message of the gospel as they have allowed a mixture of worldly wisdom and outright disobedience to verify that they've not really made a genuine profession of faith. So they're not at risk of losing their salvation. They're at risk of proving that they were never really saved. And so this is what Paul wants to heighten in their understanding, is that, hey, just because you talk the talk doesn't mean you're necessarily a true believer. That's going to be demonstrated by your holding fast until the very end. So it's not that they will lose their salvation, but that they were never saved. And if that is true, then their belief 
is in vain. It doesn't nullify the promise of God or the power of God or the grace of God. It just exposes a lack of genuineness in the profession of faith. So this primarily is a challenge to those who believe they were the spiritually elite, that they have ascended to something greater or better than the simplicity of the gospel message and what that means. So there's this common ground in our belief. Secondly, Paul will say that there's common ground in the message. Now, Paul is going to remind them of the message that he preached, that they received, that they are standing in, that has brought them salvation. Verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So the Paul, excuse me, the message Paul received from God is a message that he has shared with them. And there's really two primary components that Paul articulates here. Letter A, it is death for sin. Christ died for our sins. As you read through the Gospel account, we remember that Jesus committed no sin, that He was in fact a spotless Lamb in the image of the Lamb that would be slaughtered for the sins of the nation of Israel, that He had perfectly obeyed everything the Father had given Him to do, and yet central to the Gospel message is the need for a Savior, the need for forgiveness, the need for cleansing from sin. So we can never meet the holy standards of a holy God on our own. We need someone to do that for us, and that is exactly what Jesus did. He died for sin. He did this by dying on the cross, by dying in our place, by taking upon Himself our punishment, and making an atonement for our sin... And then in exchange, He gave to us His righteousness so that we would be able to meet the holy standards of a holy God. Not through anything that we have done, but what He has done for us by dying in our place, by paying the penalty for our sin. All of this Jesus did, according to Paul here, exactly as was promised according to the Scriptures. So Jesus and Peter and Paul quoted or referred to Old Testament passages such as Genesis 22, 18 and 14, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Isaiah, excuse me, Hosea 6 2, and many other sources that foreshadow the coming of the Messiah who is going to die for the sins of the nation and be raised again. Over and over again, either directly or indirectly, literally or in figures of speech, the Old Testament foretold the death of the Messiah, of His burial, and of His resurrection. So according to the Scriptures, there was the need for a death for sin, and letter B, resurrection for life. More than just dying for our sin, Jesus was raised from the dead to provide victory over sin and to conquer the consequence of sin, which is death. Now, Paul will develop this more fully later on in chapter 15, but the gospel message stands upon the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and this will become the proof that Paul will use to verify our own bodily resurrection in the future. So without this bodily resurrection, Jesus was just a good man that died an unnecessary death. 
But with the resurrection, Jesus died as the Son of God who made atonement for sin and then overcame sin through the power of God. It is the resurrection that brings us victory. It is the resurrection that brings us hope. So I want you to imagine this. If you believed in the message, and if you were standing firm in the message, and if you believed that it brought you salvation, but you didn't believe in a future bodily resurrection... What would be the benefit? Where would the hope be? Where would the victory be? It's complete, it's, excuse me, it's absolutely incomplete to separate the resurrection from the centrality of the gospel message. Again, the resurrection is promised and was accomplished according to the scriptures. So in addition to our common beliefs and the commonness of the gospel message, there is the witnesses that have verified and affirmed the resurrection of Jesus. So verses 5 all the way through 8, we read about the witnesses. And he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. So the resurrection isn't a myth, and it isn't folklore. The resurrection was witnessed by many different people. In fact, the noted Jewish historian Josephus also gives verification of the resurrection of Jesus. And as a prominent teacher in Jesus' day, Josephus had nothing to gain by telling others of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, he had much to lose in verifying all the claims that were being made about Jesus. So Paul notes that Peter, whom they personally knew, Peter had been to Corinth, he had preached and taught them. Obviously, he has told them of this encounter that he had with the resurrected Jesus. Paul goes on to recount that he appeared to the twelve, as Peter and Paul have undoubtedly shared with them. And then he mentions something that is not recorded anywhere in the Scripture, that Jesus appeared to 500 people in a single event. This isn't recorded in the Gospels, it's not recorded in Acts, and there isn't clarity in exactly when this took place. It could have happened at Jesus' ascension, it could have happened at another event that just was not recorded in the Gospels, But Paul says that this has happened. He would speak of this by his own first-hand accounting of this. And he says that many of those witnesses are still alive, although some have fallen asleep or some have died. Then he goes on to talk about Jesus appearing to James, likely the brother of Jesus, which is also not recorded in Scripture, but was a part of the tradition that was shared amongst the apostles and the believing community. And lastly, Jesus appeared to Paul as to one untimely born, the common messenger to the Corinthians. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Now Paul is probably the most prominent example of the power of the gospel. Remembering who Paul was, he was a Jew trained in the most rigid rabbinical school, excelling in every way. In fact, the tradition was that he was outpacing his teachers in his study and understanding of the Old Testament. 
And having been trained in this most rigid rabbinical school, he knew everything about the promised Messiah. He was determined to stamp out the abomination known as the way, the followers of Christ. And so we recount what is recorded for us in the book of Acts about this individual we've come to know as Paul. And so Acts 8, 1 through 3, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. This was what Paul was committed to doing as a trained Jew who was zealous for the things of God and wanted to eradicate the way because he believed them to be false and a detriment to the Jewish faith that he so dearly clung to. And all of this radically and instantly changed on the road to Damascus. We read in Acts chapter 9, verses 1-9, through Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Do you see that? Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues, plural, at Damascus, so that, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem where they would stand trial and likely be executed. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice and seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And so here we have this zealous murderer on the way to the synagogues in Damascus, going to imprison and bind believers and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. He's encountered by the Lord. He's stricken blind. He's led back to Damascus now. And a man by the name of Ananias, whom God has appeared to, visits with Paul, lays hands on him, and prays with him. And immediately, Paul's life is radically and forever changed. We read in verses 20-22 through of chapter 9. And immediately, he, Paul, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Paul, excuse me, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So here's the key to this, and here's the reason why I went into this detail as we begin to study what Paul has to say about the resurrection. The most powerful proof of the resurrected Christ is the changed life of you, of me, and most certainly the Apostle Paul. Think about who Paul was 
and who Paul became, do you think that Paul would have given up the life he knew and set about on the life that he now lived if the resurrection wasn't real? If there wasn't a hope in the bodily resurrection of the future? The resurrection is central to the gospel message. It is our hope. It is our victory. It's what we have to look forward to and should be longing for the end of this life that we know in order that we can be ushered into an eternity with God. I saw this sign driving around the city the other day. Eternity is a long time to be wrong. Think about that. Eternity is a wrong time to be long, to be wrong. The most powerful proof of the resurrected life, excuse me, of the resurrection, is a changed life. Paul goes on now to talk about this in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, an apostle, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. He's standing in the salvation. He's holding fast until the end. But I labored even more than all of them, the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. His life was changed by the grace of God. And once a murderous persecutor of the church, he is now the most committed committed ambassador the world has ever known. It is likely that Paul's previous persecution of the church became his greatest motivation in giving his whole self to the gospel message. Now, I was never a persecutor of the church. I never ushered any threat against any individual who professed to be a believer before I came to know Christ. But the reality that you and I share together is simply this. Apart from the resurrection that is central to the gospel message, we are all bound on the fast track to hell and there's no way out except for the truth of the gospel message. That should be the same level of motivation for us to give our whole self to the truth of the gospel message. Even though we are not persecutors or murderers of other Christians in an attempt to stamp out the gospel message. But as Paul attributes here very, very quickly, this work of grace is not his determination. It's not his self-effort. It is the work of the grace of God in his life. Think about that. Paul was not living a life of penance and trying to make up for what he had done wrong. Paul is not trying to earn the favor or the merit or the love of God by going above and beyond all the other apostles. Paul just simply recognized with great clarity the abundant, overwhelming grace of God demonstrated to him in the personal appearance of Christ on the road to Damascus. And this was evidence of the grace of God and he could do nothing other than live his life entirely for Christ. This is the work of grace in God's or in Paul's life. So regardless of who the messenger is, the message is the same. And this is what Paul says in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, the other apostles, so we preach, 
that common gospel message, and so you believed. So the common ground and beliefs of the gospel and of the resurrection, the message of the resurrection itself, the witnesses who attested to the resurrection, and of course Paul, their personal evangelist and discipler and pastor, has attributed to the bodily resurrection of Christ. And so this begins to set the stage now for what the, for the teaching that Paul will give to the church in Corinth as it relates to the future bodily resurrection of believers at the consummation of all things. So central in Paul's argument for our bodily resurrection is Jesus' own resurrection, which is central to the gospel message, and to Christianity as a whole. So here's one of the things that isn't quite as obvious to us as it will be, is that if we are to deny the the bodily resurrection of believers... That calls into question the bodily resurrection of Jesus Jesus himself. Because in the same manner that he was raised, we are going to be raised like him. And if we are not going to be raised like him, then what does that say about his own bodily resurrection? Well, this is the basis of what Paul is going to teach as we go through this in the next several weeks. Let's pray together.